when we talk about shepherding or guarding our hearts. Okay, so Solomon tells us that above all else, as an item of first importance, we must guard our hearts. Okay, this is foundational to the Christian life, and we must never graduate from heart shepherding, from heart guarding. So that at Grace Bible Church, we recognize this is so important, that that's what Build and Wellspring Right, The classes that we want everybody in the church is a foundational level to go through. We, in those classes, we proclaim Proverbs 4.23 is the first and most foundational discipline. Shepherd your heart. Right, So the Christian who is consistently shepherding her own heart well will then be well positioned to care for her home. Right, That's discipline too. And it is exactly that kind of Christian, right? The one who hasn't skipped over her heart, who's caring well for her home, who we want discipling others and serving in the church. That's discipline three. So, and this will primarily happen in our church, right? In the context of small groups, right? When you think of, okay, I'm shepherding my my heart well, my my home, I'm, I'm actually caring well for my home. I want to go out and serve in the church, um, first on your mind should be, how can I care for the other ladies? How can I care for those in my small group? Right? Wellspring isn't a, a substitute for small group. I know in church it can feel like there's lots of stuff to do. We got equipping hour tomorrow, church in the morning. We got Wellspring this morning. I, I don't want Wellspring to, to become, it can be a temptation to just become a substitute during this season for small groups. I pray that what what you actually learn here about caring well for your heart translates immediately into your home and that the arena in which you're you're actually practicing these things with others is primarily in the context of small groups. If if you have any questions about that, any concerns, or just feel overwhelmed with that and just feel like there's too much going on, how should you think about small groups, please talk to me. Talk to Sarah, talk to my mom, talk to any of the elders, but... Just something I, I do want to press as, as we're going into a new year. The final run of, of Wellspring is um, do Wellspring well. But let this be a, a foundation that drives you to, to care well for your small group as you care well for your home, not playing leapfrog over your heart. Okay, so we can't play leapfrog over our hearts. You're going to hear that over and over again today, hopefully over and over again in the church. And... Um, I hope that today's lesson on Proverbs 4.23 and other scriptures that talk about guarding the purity of your heart will help you as you think about heart shepherding. Help us to think biblically about it. So let's get started with Proverbs 4.23. But first, let's pray. God, I, I beg that as we have your word open in front of us, as I speak and seek to expose the truth of your word, I beg that you would guard and guide my words. I beg that you would reveal yourself to us and cause us to worship you. God, I pray that you would grant us understanding by your spirit and finally transform us, sanctify us. God, if there's any here who don't know you, even save some, as your word is preached this morning. So God, please use this message this morning 
to make me guard my heart more diligently. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So look at Proverbs 4.23. You have it on your handout today in all the different versions. Um, it's, an, it's an incredibly simple and profound passage. And it teaches a simple and profound truth. And armed with this, you will understand the importance of the battle for your heart. You'll be better equipped to pursue God and fight sin. And you'll be better equipped to shepherd your heart, your homes, and your ministry. So Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. In Proverbs 4.23, there's three parts of the verse. Do you see it? There's a what, a how, and a why. So think through the verse without looking down. Guard your heart with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. What's the what, what's the how, and what's the why? It's a simple outline. We're going to use that for our message. You can use that to help you understand the verse as you review it in your own mind. A what, a how, and a why. So let's identify those. There's a what. There's a command. Solomon, he's a wise father, and he has this command for his son. And it is, guard your heart. You can look at the other English versions to see sort of what, what the command encompasses. It's, it's keep your heart. Uh, watch over your heart. Guard your heart. And there's a way in which the son is to do this. That's the how. How is the son to guard his heart? With all vigilance. Above all else. With all diligence. And why is he to do this? And this is key. Why is the son to guard his heart above all else? Because it is the source of life. Other English versions render that Hebrew phrase as from it, from the heart flow the springs of life. It's the source of life. Or the NIV I think says it well and that's the the word for, for our ministry. It's the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23 is really easy to understand. Right? A what, a how, and a why. And you probably have it memorized by now. If you didn't already. Guard your heart. What? Above all else is the how. For it is the source of life. That's the why. So let's, let's start this morning with the why of Solomon's command. Why why should Solomon command his son to do this above all else? Right? There's lots of commands in the Bible. There's lots of things that that son should have on his mind. There's lots of things that we should be about. But if there's something that we're to do with all diligence and above all else, that's important. Let's understand the reason why it's so important is because of the why here. So let's, let's get to the heart of that. The heart is the well or the source from which all other behaviors spring. Have you ever sinned? Of course you've sinned, but have you ever sinned and thought, where did that come from? That's not me. Right, exploding at your roommates. Maybe a short temper with your husband. Anger at your kids. Frustration with your coworkers. 
entertaining or acting on sinful fantasies, laziness, lying, gossip, sharp speech. Have you ever thought when, when you see those things in your life, have you ever thought, where did that come from? You should. And Proverbs 4.23 will help us get at the root of these sins and more and prepare us for the great gospel solution to the heart of the problem. So the inspired Solomon gives us a profound illustration for your life. You can think of, of everything you do, everything you think, everything you say, all of that. Think of it as water, water flowing. And all of that water, all of who you are, what you do, what you say, what you think, all of that comes from a source. It has the characteristic of the source. And that's the wellspring that it flows from. It's your heart, right? So if you do something, you say, where did that come from? You know the answer. It came from the heart. And obviously this isn't the blood pumping physical heart, but rather the, the term that the Bible uses to describe the most inner you, right? It's the source from, of all that you are, all that you think, all that you do. And this might sound pretty simple. It is. Uh, but this simple truth has some profound consequences. It reveals the relationship between our heart and our actions. So there is no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Think about that for a second. There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. So you can't think, oh, I'm going to act contrary to my heart for this portion of my life. Or, oh, I'm sure that what I did there, that didn't come from my heart. That was something else, right? There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart. Or put another way, and this is profound, I think, there's no part of your life that your heart does not affect. Right? There's no part of the way that you live that doesn't flow from your heart, but on the flip side, there's no part of your life that your heart doesn't affect. So think of that as, as we move on into the, the next portion, that the, the image of this illustration, it's of a city's vital water source. Pure water at the source can provide everyone in that city with pure water, right? But what happens to that city if the source is contaminated? If the source is contaminated, there's no hope for pure water in the city. And this is a problem for the human race because the Bible describes our hearts, our life source, right? Everything that we are. Everything that we do, the Bible describes that life source in some pretty unflattering terms. Consider Jeremiah 17, 9. This is the next thing on your handout. It says, Jeremiah 17, 9. You probably know it. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And consider that God, when he saw the wickedness in man's heart and was moved to kill everybody but Noah and his family, 
Consider his assessment of the human heart in Genesis 6, 5. Open your Bible there. This is a good verse to know. And when you think about what God has to say about the human heart, in light of those two truths, right? That no part of, that every part of who you are or everything that you do is affected by your heart and nothing that you do is, doesn't come from your heart. Um, think about, think about that in light of, of Genesis 6, 5. Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Did the flood fix that? No. The flood didn't fix man's heart problem. That description of man's heart as only evil continually it's still just as true today. So there's no part of your life that does not flow from this wellspring. And this wellspring is deceitful, desperately sick, and only evil. So based on Proverbs 4.23, what would you expect to come from the woman with this evil life source? Right, we're going to do some biblical math. Genesis 6.5 plus Proverbs 4.23 equals Romans 3.10 through 12. Right? A poisoned well produces poisoned water. A wicked, unrighteous heart produces wicked, unrighteous actions. And always consistent with itself and the truth. This is exactly what we find God's assessment of mankind's heart is in his word. Genesis 6.5 plus Proverbs 4.23 equals Romans 3.10. Which quotes Psalm 14, 1-3 when it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. Naturally, no one has a good heart. And no one, not even one, does good before God. We are a bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives because we have wicked hearts. Or we should put that in the past tense for Christians, right? We, are, we were a bunch of wicked people with unrighteous lives because we had wicked hearts. Because God doesn't leave the Christian in that situation. Speaking of new covenant, of his new covenant with Israel, and the Christian Gentiles get to enjoy this as well. God says in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, and this is, should be on the back side of of your first page. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
God promised Israel that he will someday give them a heart transplant. That would be their only hope for cleansing, right? And this hasn't yet happened for all of Israel, but it is what God does for the Christian when he saved us, when he saves us. Christian, it is what God did for you. What vivid imagery. I, I have a privilege of giving anesthesia every day. My job is super cool. I, I actually do cardiac anesthesia, so I get to play with people's hearts all day long. And unfortunately, what, where I work, it's with, mostly with people with heart failure. And I get to see just how important a healthy physical heart is. It's, it's really sobering to see what happens to a body when a heart goes bad. The, the blood stops flowing effectively. The whole body suffers. God designed healthy hearts to be nice and elastic, ready to stretch as the venous blood pours in and it vigorously pumps the oxygen-rich blood out to the rest of the body. Right When you exercise, when you need more oxygen, your heart's ready to respond. Unless your heart's bad. When the heart's diseased and it's had its blood, su- blood supply seriously compromised, the supple and powerful heart becomes literally like stone. It's crazy when you see this. Uh, I do echoes all the time, so I can see the heart. It, it just doesn't move. It looks like stone. Blood f- passively flows in, but the heart won't stretch to accommodate it. And it pumps so weakly that the organs are starved. Cognitive function deteriorates. Lungs fill with fluid. Kidneys shut down. Muscles refuse to work. People can't walk more than a few feet without getting short of breath because of their heart. The body is literally incapacitated in weakness and lethargy, ultimately leading to misery and death. And it's, it's remarkable to see how this dying body is almost instantly rejuvenated with a heart transplant. If you've known anybody with a heart transplant, you've seen that. And this is just a, a glimpse of what God did to us with our, our spiritual heart. And, and the effects on our spiritual heart are far more remarkable, far more long-reaching, all the way into eternity. But if this stony heart, right, and we're talking back to the physical heart, if this stony heart is removed and replaced with a healthy heart, the person literally becomes like a new person. Dying organs are rejuvenated by new blood flow. A slow mind quickens, and a body that looked like death is filled with new life. Christian, you had an old heart of stone. I had an old heart of stone. And God gave us a new heart of flesh. This is what God did for you, Christian, when he saved you. God took your old dead heart and he replaced it with a new one. You were born again, John 3, 3. Right? You are a new creation, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, And God has given you a new heart. We used to be slaves of sin. Why? When Paul says we were slaves to sin, why were we slaves to sin? Because our heart was sinful. We used to be disobedient. 
not reluctantly, not against our own will. We were disobedient from our heart. But Romans 6.17 tells us what God has done. And Paul starts appropriately. Open your Bible to Romans 6.17. As you do that, I want to comment that this hopefully is old territory for you. This Hopefully your heart is, is as I, I talk, it's stirred afresh to, to praise God, to worship God, to rejoice in this new heart. But it's crazy how glorious truths that you're comfortable with can sometimes not affect you. Don't let that be the effect this morning. I know that you're tired. I'm, I'm tired. Fight for your response to be Paul's response here in, in Romans 6, 17. John MacArthur, I heard him one time, he said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. This is the most glorious stuff that we could ever hear about. This is the gospel. And it's so easy to let it just say, I know that. I know that. Give me something new. Be... Be soft wax. Let the the glorious truths of the gospel melt your heart and stir you to worship this morning instead of waiting for something new or waiting for something to do. It would be appropriate if we just stopped now and we just worshiped God for the the heart transplant. We're not. We're going to move on. But I, I just wanted to comment and say, please, please fight for joy in worship this morning. In all of your Bible study, as you read through the Bible in a year, Sometimes it's hard. You say, give me something to do. Give me some application here. I'll tell you what, it's application enough if you worshiped God as you met with him in his word. So always just say, what does this passage teach me about God? And whatever it is, that's worship worthy. Okay, so make a practice. Don't ever be content to to close your Bible without having worship. And we're going to have Paul model that here. Romans 6, 17 starts... Appropriately, he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. We were slaves to sin because of our hearts, but now we've become obedient, not reluctantly, not against our will. We've become obedient from the heart to a stand, the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin we've become slaves to righteousness John Flavel who's one of my favorite authors he's 17th century Puritan he actually wrote a, a whole book about Proverbs 4.23 called Keeping the Heart um, he said it well he said the heart of man is his worst part before salvation and it's his best part after it. Praise and thank God for that. Proverbs 4.23 told us that the heart is the wellspring of our lives and that would be horrible news if it were not for this great news of the gospel. That when God saves us, he changes us from our very hearts. The change in us that the gospel brings, it's not superficial. 
You have been changed from the core of who you are. Therefore, change and obedience is not optional. It must coexist with the Christian's changed heart because it evidences the very fact that you have been changed from the heart. Let everything else that you learn today, everything that you resolve to do today, sit under that shadow of, of the massive truth of the gospel, right? If, if you have that changed heart, if God has forgiven your sins, if he has given you his righteousness, no ounce of obedience can merit anything from him. Nothing that you can do can lose your salvation. This is all from God. He is more committed. If he would give us that heart transplant at the very cost of his son, he is more committed to our holiness, more committed to our purity of heart than we ever could be. Okay? We are not made righteous because we purify our heart. God, when he, for, he placed all of our sin on his son, when he takes his son's righteousness and places it on us, he simultaneously purifies our heart. That process will not be complete till heaven, right? Perfection is not what we get now. And that's okay, right? We, we will strive to guard our hearts above all else because we recognize that it's the very source from which our life flows. It was bought with the cost of his blood, of, of Jesus's blood. But we will not place any of our merit on how pure our heart is. Right? And when we see sin there, we won't despair like it's ultimately final. We say, wow, God, you purified this source. So my, my efforts at purity, they're not going to be superficial. They're not going to be behavior modification. We'll talk about this more. But they're going to aim with God at the source, understanding that God has already done what we never could do by giving us that heart transplant. So if God has changed, has not changed you from the heart, right? If you hear this and you're like, I don't think my heart's ever been changed. Um, if maybe you've been dealing with sin, like I need to clean up my act. I need to do better. Um, or maybe you've been putting some stock in your own righteousness. You've said, I've been doing pretty good. I, maybe God will love me now. If you're here just doing religious things, if you think that it's, it's good that you're here, that, that you're doing your religious duty for the day, know that for sure religious efforts are futile because they're not for God's glory and they flow from a wicked heart. They're evil in God's eyes. And in a room this size, there's a, a chance that there's a, there's probably a good chance that, that at least one has not been changed from the heart. Maybe you're content with religion. Please consider if this is you. Confess it to God. Despair of any goodness you thought you might have on your own. And turn to God in desperate faith and ask him to cleanse you from the heart. Forgiving your sins. Giving you his righteousness. And he will take care of what you never could take care of on your own. Because he deals with us at the heart level. The problem's the heart. The solution must deal with the heart. So the only solution that will work 
is the gospel. It's what the world so desperately grasps after, right? With all kinds of psychological solutions. They see sin. They see its horrible effects. How can we get out of it? The only solution is to be changed from the heart. And that's, that's what the gospel does. So, so please consider if that's you. If it isn't, praise God because it was him who worked that in you. Um, and where you see maybe a clinging to religious effort, to self-improvement, um, just repent and praise God and, and trust in God for that hard work. Next quote on your page from Richard Baxter. Getting a spattering of my favorite authors. Richard Baxter is a Puritan pastor. He wrote, Till the Spirit has regenerated the soul, all outward religion will be but a dead and pitiful thing. To make up a religion of doing or saying something that is good while the heart is void of the spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace, that's the hypocrite's religion. To pretend that you're holy through religious exercise and hard work while your evil heart remains unchanged, that's the religion of Pharisees. That God will be glorified to judge and whose practitioners will spend an eternity under God's right wrath. God's not impressed with religion. But praise God, he has no interest in this sort of religion. Through the gospel, by Jesus' work at the cross, God gives us new hearts, right? Romans 6.17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. So Christian, your heart is precious. It's precious because it's the source of your life the source from which all your life flows. But it's also precious because it was made new in the gospel. Imagine a city with a poisoned well. Remember the illustration back before the, the image that, that Solomon had in mind. Imagine that city with a poisoned well. The city couldn't flourish. In fact, the city would only be full of death. Then one day the king filled in that old poisonous well and he dug a new one, one that was pure. Immediately, the new city was full of life. Those who were made weak, anemic and dying because their well was full of poison, they now would have a taste of that which they never knew, right? Pure water. Those people would know the importance of the wellspring. They knew the effects of a tainted well, and now they know the joys of purity. Those people would know the importance of a pure water source, and those people would never, it would never cross their mind to think, I wonder how much poison I could let back into this water and still be okay. They'd never think that. For the first time, they would know the joys of purity. They, they would guard that well with all vigilance because they would know that their very lives depended on it. Not only did their lives depend on it, 
How much better is it to have pure water? Think back to their lives before, full of death, now full of life. Christian, we are those people. And in light of this illustration, consider this quote from Charles Spurgeon. The poison of the soul is only sin. And sin is like poison in many respects. Poison, wherever it enters, it stays not there, but diffuses itself all over the body. And it doesn't cease until it is infected all. Such is the nature of sin. Even in the Christian. Right? God dealt with our heart, but sin can still affect our heart. Such is the nature of sin. Enter where it will, it creeps from one member of the body to another, and from the body to the soul, till, till it has infected the whole man, and then from man to man, till the whole family. And it stays not there, but runs like wildfire, from family to family, till it has poisoned a whole town, and so a whole country and a whole kingdom. Woeful experience proves this true. The poison of sin will not be content to stay only in your heart. It will seek to destroy you, and then your home, and your ministry, your small group, this church. What poison are you dabbling with? What poison are you dabbling with? Remember purity. Long for it. Don't stop at anything to guard the well. For the sake of your life, for your home, for your church, guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the very springs of your life. Okay, so... We're now done with the why, right? And the, the truth that the heart is the wellspring of life, it leads very naturally to Solomon's command, the what? Right? We've already been all over it, right? If, if the heart is the wellspring of life and it's so precious, you naturally will do. If you understand the why, the what, the command is, is sort of obvious. Guard your heart. Sin is the poison. Purity is to be protected. So guard your heart. But I think as we look at what the Bible says about guarding our heart, we, we might, hopefully we'll be able to flesh that out a little more than, than what our natural response might be. Oh, if sin's the poison, just avoid sin. Actually is a little bit better than that. We're going to let, let the Bible guard us, guide us, guide, guide our thinking there. So notice with me that as Solomon is speaking to his son, he gives this instruction as a command. Guard, it's an imperative, it's a command. This is not optional, and it's something active. The word here used for guard, watch, keep, it's the same, same word used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe an alert sentry in a watchtower, um, like one in the Judean mountainside guarding valuable resources. A city dependent on a pure water source 
would obviously place these alert sentries around the spring and the river to protect the purity of the water. An enemy that wanted to conquer that city would be very common for them to attack that source of water. That happened all the time in the ancient world, still happens today. And that was probably the image that Solomon had in mind when he used that word of guarding the the wellspring. A city at war would have guards always on watch because they know that a very real threat could appear at any moment. And we have a preciously new water source and we know that we have ever-present threats seeking to poison the well. Right? We have our flesh. God didn't change all of us. He changed us from the heart. But until heaven, we, we live with our flesh. So we have the flesh within, seeking to taint this well. We have Satan and temptations without, seeking to taint this well. We are a people at war. We need to guard our hearts. But how are we to do this? How can we keep this source of our life pure? David, in essence, asked this very question. Psalm 119, 9. Open your Bible there. Psalm 119, verse 9. It's also on your sheet. It's pretty important. David asked, How can a young man keep his way pure? But that's basically the same question as if we're talking about purity of heart, it's basically the same question as how can we guard our heart? We have the command to do it. We know the, the importance of it. We know the why. But how? How do we do it? How can a young man keep his way pure? Let's see how David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a man after God's own heart, answers it. He says, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. When you see whole, write purity above that, or pure. Right? What is, what is something that's pure? It's, it's unmixed, untainted. It's whole in its, in its characteristic. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. How did David guard his heart? He guarded his heart with God's word. David guarded his heart by seeking God through his word. But he didn't guard it through sitting down and, and merely reading God's word or prioritizing the, the place of the, of the scrolls in his, on his shelf or, or something. He didn't do it by... By merely saying, look, I read God's word or I love God's word. He did it by guarding it according to his word and through God's word, actually seeking God with his whole heart, knowing the commandments and through seeking God, not wandering from them. As you guard your heart, you will be protecting your heart from evil, right? You, you will avoid sin as you guard your heart. You will try to not wander from God's commandments. You will be careful who and what you allow close. You'll be careful to fight temptation, not thinking that your heart can tolerate just a little bit of evil. 
You'll protect your heart from exposure to things that would poison the wellspring of your life. But we see that more importantly and more fundamental to the guarding of your heart, it isn't just what we keep out. That might be where your mind, my mind go first. When I think guard my heart, I say, what do I have to keep out? This, I remember when I first found this, it rocked my world and it it changed the way that I think about Proverbs 4.23. It must change the way we think about Proverbs 4.23. Most important and fundamental to the guarding of our heart isn't what we keep out, but what we keep in. Seek God with all your heart. As we guard the wellspring of our heart, we must be shepherding our hearts to the word of God to get the God of the word. Do you see what he says? With my whole heart, I seek what? You. The Bible isn't merely a book of rules. It doesn't merely reveal truth. It does those things. But what is the Bible most fundamentally? It's the revelation of God himself to us. So how can a young man, young woman keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. You must know God's word. You must guard your heart according to God's word. And most fundamental to that is with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. In guarding your heart, be careful that you're not shepherding it to pharisaical, behavior-focused religion, but rather to God and the gospel. Behavior-focused is so easy. You go to a small group, they say, how are you doing? It's easy to say, here's the sin I'm struggling with, or here's the good thing I did, and have no mind of your heart. You must talk about your sin. Confess your sins to one another. Share in core questions. Share share what God is doing in your life. And do it to to give glory to God who, who changed you from the heart and is working those things out with you through his spirit. But as you talk about your life, as you deal with your life, as you repent from sin, as you pursue obedience, it must be done with ultimately, God, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. All done in the shadow of the cross, where we recognize that these things don't merit our standing before God. Our sin is ultimately, it's not final. It doesn't have any say. Our heart has been deadened to those things, awoken to new life in Christ. Those sins that plague us, they don't define us. Those sins that plague us, we're not slaves to them. Ultimately, their power has been removed. Their penalty has been paid. And actually, the power to obey has now been granted through this new heart that's been given. Let's look at the New Testament parallel to David's heart purifying, God seeking in Psalm 119.9. Open your Bible to 1 John 3, 2 through 3.
want you to think this, this week, every time you open God's word, maybe before you get started, rehearse Psalm 119.9 and rehearse 1 John 3, 2 through 3 to yourself. Let's read 1 John 3, 2 through 3. I'm going to make some observations on it, on how this should affect our view of the Bible and our interaction with the Bible. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? Apart from your obedience, apart from your perfection, you actually know perfection has not yet been accomplished. A new heart has been, but it is not fleshed out in all of our life yet because of our flesh. We're God's children now, even if it doesn't look like it in every way. Because what we will be, it hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. Right, so what we will be is like him. That hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? What is the ultimate thing that changes us? Into his image. Because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And that's not for us only. It's everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We don't have to wait for that day for purity. Our hope in him, our pursuit of him, has a purifying effect on us now, even if we're not yet what we will be, because we're God's children now. And let's, let's think through this. What is the ultimate thing that changes us from what we are now? New hearts, but sin. New hearts, but but we don't always live according to our, our new desires, right? What, what ultimately accomplishes that change? One day, when we see God as he is, in a moment we'll be made to look like him. This flesh that so easily entangles us, which is so easily com- contaminated, will be removed and we will be pure Holy unto God, holy, holy, even as God himself is pure. But this passage doesn't make us give up hope of purity now and wait for that day. No, this passage gives us hope that we are God's children now and purification is possible. On that day, we become pure by looking at God, by seeing Jesus as he is. So where is God most clearly, where does God most clearly reveal himself and his true nature to us now? Where can we see God most clearly as he is? Where is our hope, that our purifying hope, most accurately directed from? It's, it's from God's word. So just as David keeps his way pure by seeking God and his word... The New Testament Christian is to hope on God, fixing the gaze of our heart on him as we look for him revealed in his word. 
as we hope in him and flee heart-contaminating sin, which the verses which follow these verses talk about, we're, we're purified more and more into what we shall be as glorified children when he returns. So this week, maybe forever, as you open up God's word, make sure you're aiming at the right thing. Right? The goal isn't merely to expose your heart to the words on the page, but to expose your heart to the God that the word on the page reveal. Okay? So remember, guarding your heart isn't most fundamentally what you keep out of your heart. It certainly includes that, right? The, the people with the city, with the fresh heart, with the, with the fresh water source, it's never going to cross their mind. How much poison can I let in here and still be okay? Right? That guy with the heart transplant, he's going to take care of that new heart. He's going to do everything he can to make sure that that heart stays healthy because he knows what it's like to have a bad heart. And us Christians, we Christians, we, we have experienced what it is to live with a heart dead to God. And we've experienced the joys of a new heart, a pure heart. So we guard that heart. We keep sin out. We will not dabble. We must not dabble with poison because we know that that poison actually taints everything that we do when it gets into that heart. But more fundamentally than what we keep out, it's what we keep in. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So do you see how important it is to flee sin and fix the gaze of your heart, hopefully on God and his word? So because the heart is the wellspring of our life, we must guard it. How are we to do that? In what, what way? Well, it's sort of obvious now, but... What Proverbs says, what Solomon says in Proverbs, we must do it above all else with all diligence, with all vigilance. We have a new heart with new love and affection for God, but the flesh within, Satan and temptations without are constantly assaulting this new heart, seeking to taint it with sin. So set up a guard for your heart by above all else not being content to let even an ounce of sin in. Rather, we guard our heart by seeking God with our whole heart through his word. All the time, every day, no higher priorities, no days off. What do you do with more attention than you give to the guarding of your heart? Right, if, if this verse is true, and it says, above all else, or with all vigilance, with all diligence. The answer, according to God's word, should be nothing. What do you do with more attention than you give to the guarding of your heart? So Solomon's not talking about guarding your heart like you might put up a chain link fence or install security cameras, like a passive guard. Like, I'll do it, I'll, I'll, I'll set up some disciplines and then not think about it, right? I, it's good, I have a lock on the door, I have a fence, maybe I have some security cameras and an alarm. You know, that's what you do to guard like sort of important things. But that's not the way that the city would guard its, its water source at war 
And it's not what the United States does for like its most important assets. The, when I was thinking through it, what's like the best example of this today? That what I came up with is NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command, deep within the Cheyenne Mountains. It's incredible if you research this. It's surrounded on every side by 2,000 feet of solid granite. It's enclosed by thick doors, blast valves, has its own multi-million gallon water supply, and it has multitude of sensors, millions actually, searching, scanning the sky, scanning all around for any and every threat to our own security and security of our nation. This place could survive a near-direct hit with a nuclear bomb. This is what the United States does to guard its most important things. Um, it's the kind of guarding that I think God's word is exhorting us to in relation to our heart. Right? It's, you can't overdo this. You aren't going to try too hard to guard your heart. Um, you're not going to be on the guard. You're not going to pursue God in his word too much. This is the modern-day equivalent. NORAD is the modern-day equivalent to the walls and constant presence of alert sentries that Solomon had in mind. And it should probably be a shadow of what we do to keep our hearts pure to God and his word. So do you see the guarding of your heart as just one task among many? Do you? Solomon commands us that the way we must guard our heart is above all else. It isn't a suggestion. It isn't just something that would be good to do in addition to all the other things that we do. No, the guarding of your heart must be the most important task of your life. And it must be done in all of your life, right? Because if there's no part of your life that your heart doesn't affect, you actually must do this in all of your life. And if there's nothing in your life that doesn't affect your heart, um, there can't be any areas of your life that you deem off limits to this heart guarding effort. It must be done with more energy than anything else that you do in life. So like the secret service protects the president, always alert. Like the United States protects NORAD, like a city protects its water supply. We must guard our hearts Vigilantly, diligently, above all else. But there's something sobering here. As we, as we think about the need to diligently guard our hearts, consider the one who wrote the book of Proverbs and this command that we're studying. Solomon. He, he surely knew the fact that if a life is to be pure and holy unto God, the heart had to be pure as well. He, he wrote this. He spent time with, with David, his dad, who, who wrote Psalm 119, verse 9. Solomon surely was convinced of the necessity of guarding a heart. But being convinced of the necessity of guarding the heart isn't important. Or isn't sufficient. Being able to teach a lesson about guarding the heart isn't sufficient. Agreeing with Solomon in this verse does not automatically mean that you're doing it. 
you can get excited about this. You could say, oh, this is just what I needed to hear this morning. I'm so glad. This is, I'm so grateful. I, I need to be guarding my heart better. You can, be, you can be convinced of the truth of this and not actually do it. It's so easy to leave this room and have the cares of this world start assaulting you. Those little things that threaten God's supremacy and the, the, the heart of your affection, the affections of your heart. So easy to go out and there's a sin that's particularly tempting. So easy to let your guard down there. Being excited about heart guarding doesn't mean that we're doing it. So consider Solomon with me. Read 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4. Turn there in your Bible. 1 Kings 11, 11, 1 through 4. This is sobering. This emphasizes the truth of the passage that we're talking about. It emphasizes the effect that sin has on our heart and why we can't be content to have just a little bit of sin go unchecked. Maybe if you guys did your homework, you remember the the homework question looking ahead. It said, consider the last time you were tempted and gave in to sin. What could you have done differently to fight that temptation before it became sin? And then consider how did that sin affect your heart? As you think about how sin affected Solomon's heart, sin, remember Spurgeon's quote, sin's not content to go live in its own little corner of your heart. Sin, just like any poison that would go into that well, diffuses through the whole well. And when that sin is in your heart, it will contaminate everything else that comes out. So when you sin and you say, where did that come from? Right? Remember the question in the beginning? We're angry at your roommates, snap at your kids, impatient with your husband. Where did that come from? It came from your heart. But I thought my heart was new. It is. But it's not perfect. And this new heart still feels the effect of sin on it. So where you see, oh, I'm sure that that little compromise over in that corner of my life, it's not going to affect this area and this other corner of my life. Yes, it is. There's no part of your life that your heart doesn't affect. And if your sin gets in and contaminates that well sort, that wellspring, right, that just that little compromise will affect you. So you must nip it at the buds, fight for the heart level. But how is your heart affected by that sin? And then think even further, the third question, what further consequences would there be if you don't repent? What if you're content to let that sin remain in your heart? Christians can't be content, right? We, we review this every week at communion. Christians are repenting people. Christians are not sin-free people, but Christians are people where when we see the sin, we repent. Why? Well, because it's who God made us to be. It's, it's, it's what we do. We, we can't be content to have sin in our life because God, that's, that's the, the whole point of the gospel is to free us from, from the penalty, but also the power of sin, right? Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. You're going to pass the test if Jesus Christ is in you. But the further consequences, what's the further consequence of unrepented sin? Further heart contamination. It's not going to be content 
to just sit there in your heart and, and, and you can't cordon off saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to compromise on what I look at on the internet, or I'm going to compromise in my interaction with that coworker, or I'm going to compromise in my spouse is just being a, a real jerk lately. I'm going to compromise on, on how I interact with him. And then you're like, whoa, look what it's doing to my heart over with my kids. Look how it's affecting my time in the word. So what do you do? Confess your sin. Confess your sin, not, not as a means of atoning for your sin. Your sin's been atoned for, but confess your sin. Pursue repentance. And ultimately, in pursuit of repentance is what? Pursuing God in his word. This is what Solomon was missing here. Watch the effect on Solomon's heart um, from his, his heart compromises. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. Why? For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And I guarantee you, he wasn't thinking when he went after these women. Oh, I'm going to abandon my love for God. I'm going to abandon God and pursue these women. I want my heart to be turned away. I'm sure he thought, I'm the wisest man this world has ever seen. I can handle this. His wives turned his heart away. He didn't guard his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted, it wasn't pure, to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. David sought God with his whole heart. And Solomon, through a series of heart-poisoning compromises, had his heart turned away. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. And consider the horrible effects on Solomon's heart, his home, his ministry as king, due to a series of compromises in the area of heart shepherding. Right? Couldn't, couldn't he just keep that sin over in the realm of wives and concubines? No, look at, look at how this poison of his heart tainted everything. His heart didn't just go after women, it turned to false gods. His children did not love God. Within a generation, the kingdom was ripped in two, inundated with idolatry, and finally God's people were marched out of their promised land to exile in chains. Little compromises that Solomon was certain that he could handle poisoned the well and all that flowed from it. Solomon knew Proverbs 4.23 better than we do. He wrote it. But guarding your heart is much more than knowing the command. We must actually do it. And yesterday's success at guarding your heart it doesn't guarantee tomorrow's. It will help you towards tomorrow, right? 
compromises will affect your heart. It's, it's, it's easier if you stay in a pattern. But yesterday's success doesn't guarantee tomorrow's, and neither does yesterday's failure doom today's guarding to failure. Above all else, more than you pursue food each day, more than you seek to care or provide for your home, more than you diligently care for your children, more than you make sure that you're successful at work, more than anything else, above all else, guard your heart. God has given you a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit, and he commands and enables you to to do this heart guarding. We must do this above all else. We must help each other do this above all else. No days off, no higher priorities. This is a lifelong faithful process. So Christian, you were saved by God's grace. And we will only guard our heart by God's grace. So depend on grace. Our new heart was created by God. It will only be sustained by God. You started, just like Paul exhorts the Galatians. They didn't start by works of the law. They started by faith. What makes you think you're going to be perfected by the flesh? You're not. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone. So this heart guarding can only come through a heart that's depending on God's grace alone as you exercise faith alone. But it can't be alone. It's actually going to be manifested by obedience, by love for God. God is not interested in religion and he's not about heart change or he is about heart change that comes through the cleansing of the cross. It's sustained by seeking him in his word as we flee sin. So the question that I have for you is how well have you been guarding your heart? Just like a city might monitor its water supply for evidence of poison. So too, we should evaluate what is flowing from our heart, from our wellspring, to see how pure the source is. Maybe you haven't been guarding your heart. Maybe you have. Well, today, guarding your heart is your most important priority. But let's, let's look at some questions to help you evaluate and guide your heart shepherding. Right, our cities don't just assume that the water's pure. They actually are constantly checking what comes out of the pipes in, our, in the homes to make sure that it's pure, looking for contaminants they didn't know was there. Those tasked with ensuring that we have pure water in our homes, they don't take confidence in the polished pipes. They don't take confidence in the fancy water fixtures or the clean cup. They're vigilantly monitoring the water as a means to determine the purity of the wellspring. So similarly, Christians don't put confidence in in outward appearances. You must monitor your hearts in the shadow of the cross where Jesus died to give us new hearts and reconcile us to him. C.J. Mahaney wrote, We study our hearts in the shadow of the cross as a means of protecting our hearts from the daily presence and opposition of sin. If you don't watch, 
you will inevitably weaken. Okay, so in the shadow of the cross, we find hope. In the shadow of the cross, right, we find forgiveness. In the shadow of the cross, we find obedience. But those things are put in their proper place, not as meritorious, not as justifying, but because our merit and justification were secured by Christ. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I've given you a few questions. I've given you six sample questions on the backside, page four of your homework, of me of your handout. I've given you a few questions that I want you to consider now and then over the following weeks. No doubt you can come up with much better questions, but these should get you started on your heart's water purity check. Right? If you want to see how, how pure the source is, let's, let's do a water purity check. The better you're doing at shepherding your heart, the better you're going to be able to answer these questions. Where you see a problem here, the answer isn't going to be superficial behavior modification answer. It's going to go to the heart source saying, how do I pursue God with my whole heart better? Or what sins have I let in that I need to flee? What sins do I need to put to death in my pursuit of God with my whole heart? Question one, do you usually sense a presence or absence of affection, of love for God? Is love for God something you talk about as being important or something that you actually feel? Your answer to that question might reveal how well you've been doing shepherding your heart. Do you have an appetite for God's word? Or is it a task? Something that's hard to do that you can't wait to send a text, read the news, go to work, eat breakfast, whatever. Is it like, I can't wait in the morning to get my heart before God and his word. The answer to that question might reveal how you've been doing at shepherding your heart. Are you daily shepherding your heart to God in his word? Do your daily routines, including entertainment choices, internet use, free time, priorities, do they reflect that you're guarding your heart above all else? How do your prayers reflect the vigilance with which you guard your heart? What lures your heart away from God? How diligently do you flee this? So there's three more spaces. You could probably fill in some more. But think, think about you and don't think quickly. Think soberly. Think... Um, Think long and hard for some questions that might help you diagnose maybe your particular struggles. Whether it's with anxiety, fear, anger, whatever. What, what are some questions that when you're doing well, when your heart is wholly devoted to God, you see evidence of his grace there? And where you make a series of heart-compromising choices, pursuing sin or, or not pursuing God, you start to see your life fail in certain predictable areas. Ask some questions. Write down some questions to help you diagnose these. And then give these questions to, to maybe your, your, if you're being discipled by somebody. Somebody in your small group. And, and ask them to follow up 
on these questions. Not as a means to behavior modification, but because we're dealing with the heart, with the wellspring, and these questions reveal your heart. So you're going to, you're going to in, in breakout time today, you're, you're going to actually discuss these, these questions, maybe brainstorm together what kinds of questions would best diagnose your heart or what these questions reveal. And don't merely stop at, oh, these questions reveal I haven't been doing a good job of shepherding my heart. But say, how, starting now, manifesting itself when you go home, and having like an active, practical steps to pursue heart guarding. Above all else, how can you do better, right? If, if you say, wow, I, I'm actually not doing a good job. I haven't been in God's word for three days. I need to do better. Or you know what? My phone, just every time I'm reading God's word, a Facebook message pops up and I get distracted. Okay, what, what does that reveal? And what might some practical heart shepherding solutions to that problem be. Talk about that together and, and actually put into place, not as a me in the shadow of the cross, right? And all that that means in the shadow of the cross, put those steps to pursue repentance into place and share those with somebody. If you're married, go home and share those with your spouse. Um, if you have roommates, go and share those with your roommates. We need each other. Thankfully, God didn't save us as islands under ourselves. He saved us into a body. And that's what God put us here for. So look around. These are a bunch of, we're all a bunch of people with the same problem and the same solution. And we can walk together to pursue God together in his word. So to the degree that you're doing a good job here, I don't want to assume that these are going to all be bad. Some of these you might say, thankfully, I actually am doing this. Don't put any merit there. Don't pat yourself on the back and say, good job, me. Say, thanks be to God. Because you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. That's not evidence that, you, that you're good. It's evidence that you have a new heart. Praise God. Keep that heart. Um, so what we've studied today shows that in our battle against sin, we have to go to the root. What we must not do when we see sin is to play leapfrog over our heart. Guarding your heart is not behavior modification. That's what the Pharisees did, right? Speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, what did Jesus say? You outwardly appear righteous to others. And you'll be tempted in your breakout session. You'll be tempted to want to outwardly appear righteous to others. When you go home, you'll want to paint over your sin, saying, it's not that bad, right? The solution clearly can't be that radical. The Pharisees weren't concerned about the heart. They missed the heart altogether. They outwardly appear righteous to others, Jesus said, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Water flowing from a poisoned well through nicely polished pipes into a fancy cup is still poisonous. Don't clean the pipes, guard the wellspring. So as you think on what you've learned today, remember that heart guarding is not behavior modification. Paul David Tripp wrote on this in his excellent book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And by the way, all of the quotes I did today, if you want like books to help you do these things, just, you can pretty much just read anything that you... That, 
these authors have written. They're, they're asking me for, for particular heart shepherding books, books to help you here. But this is an excellent one. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He said, if my heart is the source of my sin problem, then lasting change must always travel through the pathway of my heart. It is not enough to alter my behavior or change my circumstances. Christ transforms people by radically changing their heart. If the heart doesn't change, the person's words and behavior may change temporarily because of an external pressure or incentive like the pain of discipline. But when the pressure incentive is removed, the changes will disappear. So as you pursue obedience together, be very aware of your tendency to want to change circumstances, deal with the external behavior, look outwardly righteous while letting your heart remain unchanged. I was in a small group with many, many years ago a good friend. His wife caught him looking at pornography. There was a strong external pressure to change. He made a radical decision. Got rid of the internet for a year. Got rid of TVs for a year. The problem apparently went away. Didn't have, didn't have an issue. He, didn't, he skipped his heart. He dealt with externals. Those were good things. Those might be necessary things. But if you don't replace merely keeping sin out with a wholehearted pursuit of God, the effect is the day the year was up, he couldn't wait to turn the internet back on. Within hours, he's right back where he was. Today, falling away from the faith. Families of shambles. Solomon, what did he not do? He wasn't, he didn't go after his heart. What are we going to be prone to do? not go after our heart. So as you talk through these questions, please be aware that that tendency is in you. Fight for your heart with each other. Fight for your heart when you open up God's word in the morning. Fight for your heart when you confess sin and and share uh, success in small group. But praise God, he's taking care of the heart through the gospel. So, God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what it, what you've done for us by changing us from the heart, for forgiving our sins, for giving us righteousness, for making this possible. God, if we were in the world, if we didn't, if we were not your children, we'd have to be content with behavior modification. We'd have to be content with superficial change. But God, I pray that we would not settle as your children for those things. But that we would constantly, with with our whole heart, pursue you. Let us not wander from your commandments. God, we are your children now, but what we will be, it's not here yet, but when we see you as you are, we will be changed. And as we hope in you, we're purified even now. God, I pray that you would manifest that, that you would be glorified through what happens in these breakout sessions. God, thank you for your word, for its clarity. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who will apply these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.